We are studying the book of James in our Sunday evening series at the present time, the gospel of common sense as it has been called, great practical teaching leading to perfection, that is wholeness or completeness in Christ. And we have seen in chapter 1 the power of patience and the paradox of poverty and riches, the promise of perseverance, the progression of sin, the perfection of God's gifts, and finally the practice of pure religion. And having concluded our study of chapter 1, we move into chapter 2 as we look at the first 13 verses briefly uh, tonight and a very important theme, the problem of partiality. The problem of partiality. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with partiality, as the New King James renders it, or with respect of persons, as the King James renders it. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a very rich section of scripture and one that has relevance to us today certainly and to every generation because it deals with a vitally important subject, the subject of partiality. Do not hold the faith, the faith, Christianity that is, the whole of the Christian religion. Do not practice your Christianity. Do not practice it with partiality. In effect, James says, brethren, don't hold to Christianity and at the same time show partiality and special concern, in this case, for those who are rich. And that's what they we're guilty of doing. The attitude that encourages a disciple of Christ, any disciple of Christ, to show favoritism for another on external grounds, whether that uh, ground is uh, uh, wealth or whatever it is, and because of worldly considerations, that whole attitude is completely foreign to Christianity. It is as far as east is from west to being a true disciple of Christ to practice Christianity with partiality, with respect of persons. It signifies to show regard for these external circumstances, the external circumstances of someone else to show favoritism based on someone's rank, someone's wealth, someone's social position, etc. Any number 
of areas. In fact, there are four primary areas in which this attitude can be manifested. The first is nationality. You remember how much national pride Jonah had? So much national pride that he didn't want to go preach to Nineveh because he knew God and he knew that if the Ninevites repented, God was going to forgive them. And his national pride was so strong, so strong, that he didn't want them to even hear the message from God. Well, many times an attitude between nations can be disgraceful. And we commit a grievous error when we equate Americanism and democracy with Christianity. God is God of the whole world. And there's no one nation that has a monopoly on God. And having been involved in mission work for many years and seen the responses that have come from radio and television outreaches when I was involved with the work of Truth for the World and had so many shortwave broadcasts that were uh, reaching into foreign lands and to see the letters on the bulletin board that would be posted that would come in from humble individual seekers of truth from all over the world. And then the same is true today with Good News Today. We're on the internet uh, with our programs every week that are archived there and we've had responses from various parts of the globe. People who are seeking the truth. God is the God of the world, not the God of America. And we certainly need to take pride in our country and do all that we can to uh, affect our country in a favorable way and pray uh, for our uh, country on a regular basis. But we need to understand what Peter said at the household of Cornelius. Truly, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, he who fears God keeps his commandments, uh, is uh, accepted with him. And fears God and does righteousness is accepted by him or with him. And so, obviously, national pride can be a good thing up to a point, but we can go too far with it. And so, Jonah went too far with his national pride, didn't he? Well, what about social standing? You know, it's been said that few things are more worthless, few things are more worthless than one's social standing. What, what is social standing, anyway? The requirements for induction into so-called high society, those requirements stand against everything Christianity stands for. And what about economic status? Prejudice or respect to persons based upon economic status. The whole Bible account rings with divine denunciation against those who would mistreat or take advantage of the poor. And that is the area with which James deals specifically here. But there's one other area in which this attitude of partiality or respect to persons is seen, and that's in the area of race. Racial prejudice is one of the most abominable of all sins. Yes, sins. It is not a mistake. It is not an error. It is a sin to be racially prejudiced. And yet there are a great many people, at least to some degree, who are guilty of it. But instead of trying to justify it, they need to confess it to God and repent of it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised 
I wouldn't be surprised to know that there are Gentiles in Tartarus at this moment in torment for having rejected Christ simply because he was a Jew and for no other reason than he was a Jew. What about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans? We're very familiar with that. That's racial prejudice, deep-seated racial prejudice. The Bible teaches against respect to persons in the area of nationality, in the area of economic status, in the area of social standing, and certainly in the area of race. Now, I'll make this statement without equivocation. Those who are racially prejudiced are as close to heaven right now as they will ever be unless God changes his will about it or unless they change their attitude about it. And we must never in any way become subject to that kind of prejudice. It is sinful. You skip over to verse 9 of James 2. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so these four primary areas in which this attitude of partiality are seen are important to keep in mind. Nationality, social standing, economic status, or race. And then in verse 2, he says, For if there should come into your assembly, and here's his illustration of it, dealing with economic status, If there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Literally the idea you've become evil thinking judges. You have become evil thinking judges. Judgment. So here's a congregation that is assembled. A rich man enters with grand apparel, etc. He obviously has a great deal of this world's goods. Here's the poor man who enters. He obviously has very little of this world's goods. And they respect the rich man based upon his economic status. And in startling contrast, the poor man is not even offered a seat. Sit here at my footstool. James in verse 4 pronounces them guilty. Guilty of manifesting partiality. They made a distinction in effect that God did not make. And they made that distinction based purely on worldly considerations. And the result, literally evil thinking judges. Now in verses 5 through 7, James labors to show that exhibiting partiality toward the rich and contempt toward the poor is both unrealistic and it is unreasonable. Listen, my beloved brethren, he writes, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? In other words, stop and think about the situation that is characteristic of the time in which James writes to these brethren. He says, listen, my beloved, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? How does God choose anyone? 
He chooses us through the gospel, doesn't he? 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Another word, 14. In other words, God chooses those who choose him. He chooses those who choose him by hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, obeying the gospel of Christ. But it is the case that the poor outnumber the rich among those God has thus chosen simply because the poor generally speaking, are more likely to obey than the rich are. It's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, Jesus said on one occasion, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is one who trusts in riches. And those who have more riches have that temptation that they have to fight to trust in those riches. But God chooses the rich and he chooses the poor on the same basis. He chooses all of us on the same basis, through the gospel. We become the chosen when we choose God through obeying the gospel of his dear son, Jesus Christ. You remember that great paradox we've already looked at in James 1, 9 through 11, the paradox of poverty and riches. Remember, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Two brothers here, one rich, one poor. Both have had the good sense to see the need to obey the gospel, and in so doing, the poor man has been elevated because he's now spiritually rich. The physically rich has been humiliated or humbled by the gospel and made to realize that the things he possesses are not going to be able to go with him and there are greater riches that he understands and appreciates. That's the paradox there. The Christian may be poor by this world's standards, but he's rich by God's standard if he's a child of God. And we ought to realize this and be joyful as Christians no matter what our material circumstances are because we have something that losing what we have materially in this world cannot change. And that is all spiritual blessings in Christ. And a part of that blessing is seen heirs of the kingdom. What a blessing. James says they are heirs of the kingdom. That kingdom being the church, but of course here the context would indicate heirs of the eternal phase of that kingdom when the Lord comes to take the present kingdom, the church home to the Father, we as heirs will be ushered into eternity to spend all of our eternity, to be in eternity in that eternal phase of the kingdom. We're heirs. We're related to God in such a way as to receive that which naturally descends from a father-son relationship. What a blessing. When you're talked about as an heir, and the scripture does on more than one occasion, you're talking about a relationship that pertains to a father and a son. And that's what we have if we're Christians. The kingdom here, the future heavenly kingdom, the kingdom promised to those who love him. As Paul in the latter part of his life, just prior to his death, talked about that being the case with all those who love him. That crown awaited him, but not only him, but all those who love him, and to love him is to obey him. But verse 6 says, you've dishonored the poor man. You've dishonored. Great contrast in what God has done for the poor man and the action of these brethren toward the poor man. God has elevated the poor man who has become a child of God to great spiritual riches. By the same token, you are demoting him. God honored, they dishonored. And then he asked the question, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? 
the rich, generally speaking, were the very ones that were adding to their misery. Any persecution that they were receiving, for the most part, was coming from these rich Jews who were not uh, Christians, but those who were persecuting them as Christians who had become Christians. They were being persecuted by these non-Christian Jews, many of whom were quite well off, and who were dragging them into the courts. Now, Romans were in power here, so we're not talking about Roman authorities, but the, the Romans did allow the Jewish authorities to conduct certain civil and religious matters in their courts of the synagogue. And so, quite likely, that's what James is referring to here, where you are called to account for your faith before these rich people, and ironically, they're the ones who are persecuting you, and yet, ironically, they're the ones that you're showing partiality toward as you hold the faith or Christianity with respect of persons. Now, he says, do they not blaspheme, verse 7, that noble name by which you were called? They're dragging you into their courts. They're persecuting you. They're blaspheming that noble name by which you were called. What noble name would that be? That would be the name Christian, wouldn't it? And they were called Christians, remember, first at Antioch, Acts 11. And it's a divinely given name, a divine calling, as we've talked about before, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 62, where he talked about after the Gentiles would be brought in, that they would be called, the disciples would be called by a new name. And after those Gentiles were brought in, we see that very thing happening there at Antioch in Syria. And it's these rich non-believers who are blaspheming that noble name, the name Christian by which you are called, again, designating those who have obeyed the gospel as Christians, and yet you're honoring them, ironically, the very ones who are guilty, for the most part, of persecuting you. That's inconsistent, isn't it, to say the least? And in Verse 7, or verses 5 through 7, we just looked at. If you just look at those verses casually, a casual reader of those verses might get the impression that, well, you know, poor people are better off than rich people. Poor people are better off than rich people in their dealings with God. But remember, no, God is no respecter of persons. He's not saying that poor people are better off than rich people, and he is not, James is not denouncing riches. He's not denouncing riches. He's denouncing rich men who have lost the art of sympathy and have lost the art of compassion. These men were not oppressors and, and blasphemers simply because they had lots of money. Someone with lots of money is not going to automatically be a persecutor, an oppressor of Christians, and a blasphemer. That's not the case. He was condemning them because they had wicked hearts. And their money gave them power to carry out their wicked deeds that originated in their wicked hearts. But they were no worse than wicked people with no money whose poverty kept them from carrying out their wicked deeds. Had they had money, they might have been able to oppress Christians, uh, the same. He's not saying that, that uh, extreme poverty makes you automatically more acceptable to God. In fact, extreme poverty 
can be a great peril to a man's soul, just as great wealth can be a peril to a man's soul. Because as with great wealth, if a poor man is not the master of his condition, then he's going to be driven potentially to steal or do other unlawful things in order to gain the things he doesn't have. Remember what Agar in Proverbs said, Give me neither riches nor poverty. Bless me with those things, Lord, that I, I need. Not too little, not too much. It's not riches that are condemned or rich people per se, but it's what riches sometimes do to people or even the desire for riches do to people, even poor people. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I don't have to have money to love it. And you don't either, do you? And we understand that. But it is true that among wealthy people, Christians generally are in the minority in that group. But you know, that's also true among poor people, isn't it? Christians are in the minority among poor people. The majority of poor people in this world are not Christians. And the majority of rich people in this world are not Christians. The point is the majority in this world is not, uh, the majority of people don't believe, period, rich or poor. Christians are in the minority in any group. But in the last verses that we'll look at and that we read earlier in verse 8 through verse 13, there's something that comes into consideration here that would be called the royal law. The royal law. And James writes in verse 8 beginning, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and then he quotes that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And of course that goes back to uh, the law of Moses and it's almost as though they had uh, defended themselves in effect or were acting as they were uh, by saying, well all we're doing by showing this attention to these rich people, all we're doing is just fulfilling the royal law. We're just loving our neighbor, isn't that what we are supposed to do? Well, yeah, it is. And upon that law hang all the law and the prophets and that royal law of loving neighbor as self, loving God first of all and then loving neighbor, that law upon which all the law and the prophets hung is still uh, a part of the law of Christ obviously, which Christ himself incorporated into the new covenant, the perfect law of liberty. And it's fine to fulfill the royal law going all the way back to uh, the book of uh, Leviticus as a part of the law of Moses, of course. Uh, the people of God were told to love God and to love their neighbor as, their, as themselves. In Leviticus uh, 19, verse 18, you have that stated there. And so uh, there is some allusion here to uh, the law of Moses. Uh, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 18. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, if you're fulfilling that, James says, well, that's all well and good. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you're convicted by the very law that you're contending that you uphold as transgressors. Remember what the law involved? Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. The law is one because it originated from one 
source. And so verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of, of all. And remember, we already alluded to verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit what? A mistake? No, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then verse 10 refers to the old law. One sin under the Mosaic law branded a man as a sinner. Didn't mean that he had to be guilty of breaking every law, but he became a lawbreaker in principle. Who is a lawbreaker? A lawbreaker is one who breaks a law, whether it's one law or whether it's many. You know, there are certain individuals in our society that are known as criminals. Why are they known as criminals? Because they've broken every law on the book, right? Well, of course not. They're known as criminals because they have broken perhaps one law and one law only, but they can still be rightfully branded as a criminal as a result of doing so. James's point is, no matter how good you may be in some respects, with partiality and prejudice in your heart and in your actions, you have acted against the will of God, you violated the law of God, you are transgressors of the law. And the application for us today is that one scripture is just as important as another. And we cannot pick and choose when we're confronted with God's law because God's law is a unit. It is unified. There are no major laws and no minor laws. If they're laws, they are laws. And a man might be good in nearly all respects, but he can spoil it all by one sin of which he will not repent. Now, we're not talking about occasional sin that occurs through weakness of the flesh and we pray to God for forgiveness of our sins regularly and we continue to walk in the light as God is in the light and the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing. But we're talking about continual habitual sin, picking and choosing, consciously saying, well, yes, I, uh, I don't like that part of the law. I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that. I like this one, so I'll do that one. And try to justify ourselves on that basis? Well, certainly we know better. That's what James is saying here. The law is one. For he who said, verse 11, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, then what? You have become a transgressor of the law. You are a lawbreaker. The law is one because it originated from one source. It is the single expression of the divine will. It has to be regarded as a unit and respected on that basis. Someone who's before a judge in a court of law for drunken driving doesn't defend himself by telling the judge, I haven't stolen anything, judge. I haven't stolen a thing. Well, obviously that's no defense. And members of the Lord's church wouldn't think of murdering or stealing or taking the Lord's name in vain, etc. But what about prejudice? What about envy? What about gossip? What about unchristian attitudes toward others in the church, toward the elders at times? In places we see that, we certainly need to make sure that we are consistent in our living. And our defense before God can't be, I never murdered anybody, Lord. Oh, I know I did this or that, but I never murdered anybody. That's not a defense, is it? And that's what James is driving at here. He's saying that we need to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christianity, 
not with partiality, but with perseverance and consistency because a judgment day is coming. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. A judgment day is coming. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And that standard of judgment, James reminds our, the readers here, is the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. That's the gospel. He who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And everything we say, everything we do, should be done in full, full awareness that all of us will stand before God and Christ in judgment one day. The Bible has much to say about proper speech and proper conduct. And we're going to have to give account for it. And so the constant awareness of a coming judgment is certainly a great incentive for righteous living, isn't it? Great incentive for righteous living. Well, finally, verse 13, James writes, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember what Jesus said about it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What's the, what's the reverse of that? Condemned are the merciless, for they shall obtain no mercy. Blessed are the merciful, condemned are the merciless. We must understand and appreciate the need to show mercy to others in order to receive mercy from the God of mercy. And God is a God of mercy. But James reminds us here that judgment before God is going to be without mercy, even from a merciful God, if we in our lives have not shown mercy to others. Sobering thought, isn't it? Those who fail to be merciful to their fellow man will stand before a merciless God in the judgment. But in contrast, the merciful will rejoice in the day of judgment. Confident that having expressed mercy, practiced mercy, they will receive mercy. Mercy triumphs or glories over judgment. Doesn't mean that we don't point out sin in people's lives when sin is evident. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying sugarcoat sin or overlook sin or ignore sin. No, indeed. He's saying exhibit mercy in emulation of the God of mercy before whom we will all one day stand and before whom all of us will need mercy. All of us. We'll need mercy. This is a rich section of scripture here, and we need to heed its teaching. We must obey God in all respects except all of his commandments. And what are his commandments for those who have never obeyed the gospel? And what are his instructions for the wayward sinner, the wayward child of God? They are clear, and they have been oft repeated from this pulpit 
Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Him to be the Christ. Be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins and answer the call of the gospel by doing that and become among the called, that is, those who've obeyed the gospel of Christ. To come home to your first love as a wayward child of God requires repentance, confession of sin as publicly as it's been committed, and fervent prayer to God who will forgive because he is a merciful God who forgives those who turn to him in repentance and then spend the rest of their life showing the kind of mercy that God requires in order to receive that mercy at the judgment. If you need to respond tonight, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage?